0: My husband is having a midlife crisis. I asked him if I could tell you about it, and he said yes. So don't worry about us. Now, usually when we hear midlife crisis, we think of crazy cars or, I don't know, a tattoo or a new hairstyle or even sadly broken relationships. But thankfully, this is a very good midlife crisis. It has to do with trees. Maybe 200 or 300 of them, I don't really know. We haven't counted lately. But for the last few years, Justin has taken to planting native trees in our yard. Now, our yard is very big, but this is a lot, especially for the one who frequently mows around them. And so while I mow around these little saplings, I think about trees, and I think of this blessed, happy person in Psalm 1 who is described like a tree planted by flowing streams. Now, I don't have a tree in my yard. I I don't have a stream to water the trees in my yard. But I have seen creeks with trees growing beside them. When I was a teenager living in North Dakota, we lived about one mile from the Maple River. And so I would frequently walk to the Maple River where there was a cottonwood growing right next to the bridge. And it was a beautiful tree. It had lots of shade. It gave forth its snowy fruit in its season. And I did look this week, as you can see on Google Maps, and I wanted to see if the tree was still there. But it is gone, and I am sad. (laughs) But there are still other trees in my life. A giant oak in the front yard, a silver maple that hosts all kinds of wildlife, birds, and squirrels, and mulberry trees that, if you didn't know, they do provide jam and syrup if you're willing to make it, and even some trees that rooted accidentally when we used bits of pruned trees to mark our garden. There is nothing like a good tree. There is nothing like two or 300 good trees. So we're reading Psalms together this summer, and we start at the beginning, Psalm 1, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introductory psalms to this book of prayer, sort of like a preface. And these are more like pieces of wisdom writing, pieces of wisdom rather than prayers, because you know that in Psalm 1, God isn't addressed. But these are really important poems, because they guide us into why psalms are significant and what kind of people God calls us to be as we interact in his world. And Psalm 1 is a pretty clear delineation of the kind of people God desires us to be. It's an exercise in contrast. You want to be happy? Do this. Don't do that. And it does start off with what not to do. Happy are those, it says, who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of the scoffers. There's a progression here, you see. I like to call it an algorithm toward destruction, along three kinds of influencers. So first, the first kind of influencer is the wicked, and you're influenced by walking in step with them. The Hebrew word here literally means to walk, but there are connotations here of of to live in the style of, or the way of life, or following and taking advice. The NIV says walk in step. And this is when you're going along with someone, literally and mentally, right? We like to say, I'm with you, right? We're on the same page and we're thinking along the same line, that's what it means. And this word wicked here has to do with hostility to God and moral wrongness. First step in the algorithm toward destruction, follow the advice of the wicked. Second step, stand with sinners. This has to do with presence, standing with the sinners. So you've you've walked somewhere together, and then you stand there talking. You know how that is, right? And sinners here just means sinners. And the third step has to do with abiding, with staying. We go inside, we sit down, we sit in the seat of the scoffers, the mockers. We join them in their settlement. Scoffers has to do with arrogant individuals who love conflict and reject correction. They're smart influencers, usually the ones in the back of the class that it's kind of fun to sit with as they make fun of the teacher. Basically, they're unteachable. They make fun of the teacher, and they'll invite you in, and you'll stand visiting, and then you'll flop on the couch with them. But if you stay, the psalm warns, it will lead to nothing, verse 4, The wicked are like the chaff that the wind drives away. We don't use the word chaff that much in our context. If you're not from a farming background, maybe you don't know yet, but there's this protective husk on a coat of grain and it needs to be taken off. This is the chaff. And so you have to winnow the grain, which means you take the grain and you beat it or or make it fall, and as the wind blows, the chaff is blown off. The chaff is completely worthless. It's a waste product from grain harvesting. This is what the destiny of the wicked is, the psalm says. If you follow the advice of the wicked, if you take the path that sinners tread, if you sit down in the seat of the scoffers, you'll be blown away, dust in the wind. But it doesn't have to be this way for us. You have a choice, the psalmist says. Rather than following this path of the wicked, you can be planted by streams of water, you can prosper. The word here has to do with success and flourishing. We've already read happy, right? Happy is the one, literally happy, blessed. And this is how you do it. Plant yourself in the law. The psalm says, their delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law they meditate day and night. Now, as Protestants out of the Lutheran tradition, whenever we hear law, we might think, oh no, Martin Luther, saved by grace, we no longer live under the law. But the Hebrew word here translated law is really the word Torah, which has a very, very rich meaning. It means law, yes, but not simply legal code. In the First Testament context, Torah means the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that tell the story of God's creating and redeeming work. The Torah is not simply a list of 613 shoulds and shouldn'ts. It is the story of God. The Torah isn't just rules. This is the story of a ruler who wants humanity to rule with him. There is law in this. Yes, there is. But this law is centered on the story of God. And this story is something to delight in, to take pleasure in. One biblical scholar said this about Psalm 1. The Torah is really gospel, for it proceeds from pure grace when it invites man and woman to fulfill the design, the divine design on earth. People's delight in meditating on the law is associated with the delights of God. We as human beings take great delight in story. This is something we really witness with children, and I've witnessed it with my own children. I didn't ask their permission to tell this, by the way. Um, my children love stories, and so Justin and I make up stories and tell them stories. And when Evelyn was two, often at bedtime she'd say, Daddy, Daddy talky boy. Translated means, Daddy, tell me a story about when you were a little boy. Talkie boy, Daddy. And she'd say to me, Mommy, talk kibby time. Which meant, Mommy, tell me a story about Christmas time. Tell me a Christmas story. She took delight in these stories. They told her who we were. And because of that, who she's called to be. And this is the same delight we're called to take in the story of God. And this story, this Torah, is the richest story, the blackest, most fertile earth you can be planted in. You plant yourself in this story, the Psalm says, and you will prosper because this will give you meaning and hope centered on the character of God. This isn't a story simply to believe in, to to check the right box so you'll go to heaven when you die. This is a story to join, to be part of. This is what it means to meditate day and night. This verb here has to do with murmuring, speaking aloud. Not just silently meditating, having it in your mind, but the words coming off the tip of your tongue, words that are audible, murmuring this law, murmuring the story. You tell yourself the story. It's on your mind. The first moment you wake up, the last thing you think of when you go to sleep. And so when you encounter a problem, when you encounter an anxiety, that isn't what looms immediately in your mind, but you view it through the the colors, the beautiful colors of the hope of the story of God. The psalm also tells us that there is blessing in this way of righteousness, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous Because the way of the righteous is watched over by God. The verb here, watched over, is sometimes translated know, and that's really what it says. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. God knows intimately and carefully and lovingly watches over the way of the righteous. You know why? Why he knows this way, why he watches over it? Because it's his way. The way of God is the way of life. And all other ways, the psalmist tells us, So in the past two years, there have been various reports about how the social media platform, YouTube, radicalizes its users through the practice of automatic recommendation of video after video. Maybe some of you have read this. Now this algorithm isn't simply a problem for a single political ideology. There are many routes to destruction on YouTube, political and religious. Scholars have noted that this radicalization even takes place about mundane things like jogging. So regular jogging videos will lead to information on ultramarathons. And I've witnessed this radicalizing algorithm this week as I was researching to see how different Christian theologians describe the Holy Trinity. So here's what would come up next. Teachings that explore reasons the doctrine is wrong or untenable or stupid videos that mock this historic tenet of Christianity. And if I would have continued with this endless scroll, what kind of scoffers would I have been sitting with at the end? What if I weren't a trained theologian? What if I were just curious or exploring? I would have been led away from the truth of God as the source and essence of love toward a God that is not representative of biblical and theological truth. This is an algorithm toward destruction. Because we as people are formed by our habits and by the other people that we hang out with. They lead us on paths. And as your pastor of spiritual formation, I want you to remind you that you are being formed right now. Every moment in your life, you're being formed toward or away from God. But you have a choice, the psalm says. You can be rooted in the story of God, and this gives life and flourishing or you can choose the algorithm of destruction and flop on the couch with the scoffers, it's your choice. Be like the tree or be like the chaff. Now frequently in scripture, when there is a tree in a story or a poem, it might be hyperlinked. And what I mean by that is that this tree is making a literary reference to other trees in scripture. So the tree in Psalm 1 can actually remind us of several different stories. First, it reminds us that we have a choice just like Adam and Eve did with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. God's way or our way? Adam and Eve chose their way. They bought into the idea that they could be the source of wisdom, not God. The snake said to Eve, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the snake said, you do you, Eve, and she did. She looked deep inside herself and found the answer within, and then she called Adam over too. That's one hyperlink in this story of a tree. But there is another hyperlink, and it is so much louder. And this is what this make, takes this psalm from being a kind of church lady psalm, do good, not evil, make sure you read your Bible every day, to one that communicates more hope than we can ever imagine. And as I mowed around the trees this week, I kept thinking about the challenge of preaching the psalm. Because it's true, there is a choice, bad and good. I need to choose good, I need to make sure my friends aren't the scoffers, I need to watch my media habits, I need to read my Bible every day. But there is so much more, and this is it. This tree, planted by the water, is an artistic hyperlink to prophetic visions in Scripture. In Ezekiel 47... Ezekiel is given a tour of this great temple of the Lord. This temple represents God's presence with his people, and pouring out from the temple foundation is a spring of fresh water. And as Ezekiel goes on this tour, the water pouring out from the temple starts to get deeper and deeper. First it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and finally it's so deep, the only thing Ezekiel can do is swim. And the water flows down from the temple toward the Dead Sea, the sea that is still around. We know about this, full of salt. No animals can live there, right? No fish, no trees. And as this fresh water from the temple, from the presence of God, hits the Dead Sea, immediately the sea becomes teeming with life. There are fish, swarms of fish, just like God created swarms of fish in the first chapter of Genesis, and everyone's fishing, and Ezekiel looks, and he sees trees, and he describes the trees. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Ezekiel's not the only one who writes about these trees. Jeremiah does too. And so when Jesus talks about living water or says, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me, he's saying, I'm the stream. I am the crux of the presence of God, and living water is flowing from me to you. I'm that river I will satisfy. In John's revelation of Jesus, we learn more of this. John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. These visions... They're not to explain exactly or scientifically how God is going to finish the story. They're poems that represent hope. They're not to foretell, they are to foretell, to encourage God's people, to encourage God's people in exile then and to encourage us now as we wait for the coming of Jesus. They're to say, look, the presence of Jesus is already available to you right now. That river of life is available right now, already coming from the throne of God, and one day, one day, it's going to cover everything, and you're going to have to swim in it. That's how much water there is. Can you imagine? Because this is what the Psalms do. The psalmists take images and poetry and paint an active picture to renew our imagination, to restory us, so that in the doom and gloom and crime and death and sickness of contemporary life, we can still have hope that God is good and life-giving, and life-giving healing water flows from the throne of Jesus to us, water that feeds and nourishes and gives life. I anticipate the day when I will look outside my kitchen window and see 250 or so trees and hear their leaves brushing against each other. That is one of the most beautiful sounds in the world. And I hope the same for you too, church, people of God. I want you to flourish like trees in Ezekiel's vision, in Jeremiah's vision, in John's vision, in this psalm. Let Jesus water you. Draw closer to God this summer through the wealth of wisdom in the Psalms. Draw closer to Jesus this summer by sticking around here and worshiping together with us the body of Christ. I look forward to looking out at you, people of God, and seeing mature trees of faithfulness, people rooted in the Torah, the story of God and life in Christ who are bearing fruit continuously. There is nothing like a good tree. There is nothing like 300 good trees. Amen.